It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck. Welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro with you in the front row. As always, behind the scenes, J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. Want to thank you for watching and listening to our previous podcasts. We appreciate the support you've provided for this show. Continue to help us grow as well. If you're not a subscriber, you can do so very easily here today. Well, as for today, episode number 38, we're talking football and broadcasting. It's the play-by-play voice of the New England Patriots, Bob Sosi, joining us. Sosi, his roots in baseball, minor league baseball, also was the voice of Navy football and basketball, and eventually became the voice of the New England Patriots calling three Super Bowl victories. He shares his journey and his stories with us today. Episode number 38 of In the Front Row. It is the play-by-play voice of the New England Patriots, Bob Sosi. Bob, first of all, thanks so much for joining us here today. I guess you're you're right before the start of another football season as we were talking off the year, kind of it just cycles right back around. But uh, excited for you to, to get going again with the Patriots? Yeah, Mike, I'm always excited for the start of training camp, in part because, as I'm sure you can uh, you know, identify with, as a broadcaster, you like to, to broadcast and you like to call games. And when you're calling football only, as I've done, since becoming the broadcaster for the Patriots, the offseason gets a little bit longer. Now, it still passes very quickly, uh, as we were discussing offline, but I'm ready to to start work again, preparing charts, getting into the nitty-gritty of, you know, the routine week after week, uh, getting to do what uh, we all love to do in our business, and that's call games and kind of watch the unscripted – mystery unfold each week and i think mystery is a key word for this patriots team because there are a lot of unknowns far more questions than answers at this point uh, with this team coming off a playoff berth but nonetheless one that ended in a very uh, non-competitive disappointing way against buffalo yeah it's always interesting you just never know what to expect going into a season going into games as well which which makes it so much fun as you said and and why we as as play-by-play announcers love it well, I, I want to talk about how you got to where you are right now with the Patriots. It's kind of a long and winding road, a lot of different stops for you. But it began, you were born in, that, what, Auburn, New York, uh, just outside of Syracuse. And I'm sure sports were part of what you were doing growing up. What sports were you playing? What sports were you involved in that eventually you know, led to your broadcasting career? Yeah, my first love was baseball. I grew up, as you mentioned, in Auburn, New York, which is right in the middle of New York State, about an hour west of Syracuse, about an hour east of Rochester, somewhere in there. And when uh, I was a kid, we had a a cable system with a number of the super stations, including WOR, a station out of New York that carried the Mets. Uh, So my first love was baseball, and the Mets were the first team uh, that I really – became a passionate fan of. I wore Mets uniform uh, from the age of three (laughs) until I got my own little league uniform, I think, at the age of eight or nine, and uh, watched baseball every night, listened to Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Connor, the voices of the Mets, 
and not only fell in love with baseball, but fell in love with broadcasting. And, you know, I mentioned a number of stations. We had a station out of Boston that carried the Red Sox and the Bruins. We had the Yankees out of New York. We had the Rangers uh, and Knicks during the basketball season, the Nets even. And eventually, of course, uh, TBS uh, became probably the most uh, well-known superstation along with WGN. And, and the Braves were good at about that time in 1982. Uh, so, you know, I was somebody that every night surfed the dial. I was I think a rare exception in our business in, in that I became a radio broadcaster, but really first fell in love with television broadcasting of sports. Usually it's the other way around. People go to bed with a transistor radio next to their head, uh, you know, on the pillow and then eventually gravitate toward television. Uh, and, and that seems to be the model for our careers. And in my case, it's, it's been radio for the most part throughout after falling in love with sports and broadcasting. Uh, as a kid in upstate New York. But the thing for me is at that time, too, while I was watching these games, and again, it was season to season, I was a fan of all the major sports, uh, plus any other sport that was on television. I remember the first day we got ESPN on our cable system, and I was so excited as a middle school student that I called my mother at work to let her know that we got this new all-sports station that was carrying Formula One racing, uh, Australian, Australian rules football, and I think UConn and Alabama college basketball games. For whatever reason, I distinctly remember sitting down, coming home from school, and watching UConn baseball on uh, ESPN in the early days. Uh, but I wanted to broadcast every sport. I played baseball uh, through high school and into the fall of my freshman college year. That was my best sport as someone who was short, slow and non-athletic. I had the trifecta. And of course, that translated in baseball to being a, a kid with a good glove who couldn't hit. And, and that was the story of my career. When I played on a good high school baseball team, that was a state champion. But along the way, I also uh, announced baseball. When I was in Little League, I was fortunate that we had a beautiful stadium and complex with a press box and lights and a public address system. And I was this kid, like so many in our profession, who you know, people in the neighborhood heard calling the play-by-play -play in, the, in, in the backyard or on the playground playing wiffle ball or tennis ball or if we were playing football or street hockey. I was the kid who was out there calling play-by-play. -play. And so some of the people that ran that Little League recognized that, you know, I guess I had a gift at an early age or, and they wanted to encourage that. So I was allowed to play a game. And because there were lights, we had double headers. I could play a game and then go up in the press box, sit next to the official scorekeeper and public address announcer and announce some of the batter's names or vice versa. Go up for the first game, sit in the press box, announce batter's names through the first four innings and then go downstairs and warm up for my game. And, and that's really where I began to scratch that itch. And, and that's what really fueled the passion and a dream that I chased uh, from that point on. What, what was it about baseball? Uh, obviously, you played it, you loved it from that standpoint, but what was it about it watching it as well? You know, my brother was a good baseball player. There's a big difference between uh, my two older brothers and I, and I think that was really the, 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 the impetus initially. But also, I had a next-door neighbor who was a terrific guy. Interestingly, his, his name was Jack Rainey, and Jack Rainey is receiving the Ford C. Frick Award this year, uh, this weekend as we talk in Cooperstown as a great baseball announcer. But it, it's not the same Jack Rainey, but nonetheless, the Jack Rainey that lived next door to me, father of Joe, uh, who's, who's gone on to much bigger and better things as a doctor, pediatrician in our hometown. Jack was a, an avid baseball fan. And, you know, my dad was a child of the Depression who 
loved baseball as a kid. He grew up in, in, in upstate New York after his parents emigrated from Italy. And the Yankees were his team. He followed the Yankees like all the kids in his neighborhood, predominantly Italian-American, first-generation uh, kids who identified with Rizzuto and DiMaggio and Barra, etc. cetera. Uh, so my dad loved baseball, but he never watched baseball. And my dad was always working. He came home from his job at General Electric. He changed his clothes. He went back out and did carpentry, plumbing work, electrical work. Uh, you name it, he was, he, was, he was really the ultimate handyman, exactly the opposite of me. Now, Jack, on the other hand, is a great guy and a, in, in, you know, and a great dad to a big family, uh, was a huge baseball fan. And he would come home from his job and he would change his clothes and he would uh, pitch to, to Joe and I, my next door neighbor, and at that, at that time, my best buddy. And so I, I, I really fell in love with baseball because of him and the time that he spent sharing his love of the game. And then, I, I, as I mentioned, I had a New York Mets uniform that I got from, uh, from Jack. My mother gave him some money. He was going to Cooperstown. And it was probably one of the early replica uniforms. It was a flannel uniform, a Tom Seaver uniform. And, and that sealed the deal for me, Mike. So that's really why baseball became my favorite sport. That, that was my neighbor's favorite sport. It was my, the sport my brother played best. And as I mentioned, physically, it was the sport that at the time I was best suited for. Did you ever, as a kid, have a chance to get to a Mets game to see Tom Seaver in, in person during those days? I, we did. Yeah, we, we didn't go to many sporting events uh, with our family, but I, we did go to a game at Shea Stadium in 1973. And in fact, the Mets and the Phillies were playing a doubleheader and we were visiting relatives in Brooklyn, New York. And the first game of the doubleheader lasted 18 innings. And I remember that part of it. I remember some of the the things about it that I was told uh, from my you know by my parents, uh, and uh, we I've seen pictures. I still have some some uh, the pictures Polaroids that uh, are, are are saved somewhere in a scrapbook, uh, but I, I didn't really recall all the details. And then as I've gone back and, and looked on Baseball Reference, and, and recently actually a question on Twitter prompted me to do so. I can't tell you if we stayed. Uh, for the end of the first game, I know there was no way we stuck around <laughs> for the start of the second game. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we didn't last <laughs> through the entire 18 innings. But that was my first memory of a ballpark experience. And what my mom always told me is that at that age, and, and I had a far better command like a lot of people, uh, you and I both know, uh, you know, not to, it's dangerous to assume, but I'm going to guess that, you know, so many people that love sports as kids like they, we, we knew the st starting lineups of all the teams in the league we knew the stats and the batting averages of course there were fewer numbers to keep track of in the uh, pre-analytic days <laughs> but i was one of those kids who knew every batting average every rbi total home run total for all the players in the mets lineup and everybody they were playing against and i was four or five years old and there was a, a group of people that were in in, in front of us who my mother said kept turning around and marveling at this little kid that was, you know, I had this grasp of so much information. And so I was a, I was a geek. I was a baseball nerd, a sports nerd at a very young age. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience that uh, I was able to relive a number of other times uh, in, in my youth, but uh, mostly at minor league ballparks. I was a kid. We had a minor league baseball team in, in Auburn and the New York Penn league. And I was a kid who went down by the bullpen and hung out by the bullpen, usually on the first base side. So it was the visiting team. And I remember seeing people like John Elway coming through there as an Oneonta Yankee. Uh, there, you know, were other uh, very good players of my youth. And then as I got older, 
I mentioned public address announcing. One of my first jobs in, in professional sports was as the public address announcer for the Auburn Astros. And one of the players at that time was Kenny Lofton, of course, the ex-basketball star at Arizona, yeah. who went on to a great major league career. Yeah, one of the few guys I think that played in the World Series and played in the Final Four as well with uh, with Arizona. Uh, you mentioned you know the Auburn baseball team, and that's where you guys played your high school games as well, right? The the minor league ballpark was that kind of cool from that standpoint as a high school player to say, hey, we're we're here in this type of setting. Yeah, it was cool, Mike, to a certain extent. I, I got we have to keep in mind that uh, Falcon Park was probably the worst <laughs> ballpark in minor league baseball. In fact, when I was in college, I went to school at the University of Dayton. And while I was there, I had an internship with the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> I remember, and again, it's one of those things that stays with you. It's about your hometown. It's, it, 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 and I could certainly identify with, uh, yeah, with, with the point they made. But I was, I, I was in the bathroom doing what you do in the bathroom. And, and the general manager of the Reds, Murray Cook, at the time, walked in. And, you know, we're, we're side by side uh, without revealing, you know, too much. Too much. And, uh, you know, Murray says to me, Bobby, where are you from? And I tell him Auburn, New York. And he said, oh, do they still have that ballpark there? That had to be the worst stadium in minor league baseball. <laughs> Something to that effect. And it, it absolutely it had to be. I think it was one of the, the two or three oldest parks in, in minor league baseball at the time, uh, pre-renovation a number of years after I moved out of town. But you, you could go out to the infield, Mike, and I played second base. And you could pick out not only stones, but uh, bottle caps, and I hate to say it, shards of glass at times from that infield. Uh, but nonetheless, there are a lot of great players who played on it. Uh, going back to the late 60s, early 70s, the likes of uh, Pete Rose when he was in Geneva, uh, some of the great Mets uh, that played there when Auburn was the Mets affiliate and then the Phillies uh, when I was a, a really young kid going to games. And then eventually, as I mentioned, the Astros and uh, in time, the Blue Jays and Nationals became part of the Auburn Double Days in the new ballpark. Yeah, yeah, and minor league baseball certainly unique, and it sounds like that was minor league baseball ballpark in name only, maybe. Uh, so from there, as you said, you went to Dayton. You're, you were so close to Syracuse. I'm a Syracuse grad. You wanted to go into broadcasting. Was was Syracuse ever, you know, in, in your mind there, or were you just trying to get away and and, and go somewhere else? Yeah, it's it's you know, I, it's funny. I I get asked that a, a lot, and uh, at that time, I was a kid who was a huge Notre Dame fan. I dreamed my dreams were to go to Notre Dame and be a broadcaster. Well, one of them eventually came true. Now, <laughs> I didn't have, and I guess I, I had some ownership of making that happen. Unfortunately, Notre Dame didn't want me <laughs> when I was coming out of high school. So Syracuse was the school that all logical uh, reason uh, <laughs> you know, said I should have gone to. But I did want to get away, and I wanted to have an experience that was similar to what I envisioned it might be like at Notre Dame. So I went to Syracuse. They had a, an open house. And I, I probably would have gone, Mike, if not for a kind of a sour experience at that open house. It, it was a day on which there were literally hundreds, if not thousands of student, high school students who were going to Syracuse. Uh, there were tables like a trade show on the floor of the Carrier Dome. And what I remember distinctly about that experience is that uh, I talked to a professor at the Newhouse School, and there was another student who was in my group who, interestingly, wound up in my freshman class at Dayton. He was a kid from Rochester, New York, named, named Mike Holbrook. And uh, 
the, the student kind of, uh, sorry, the professor kind of rubbed my parents a little bit the wrong way, and, and they were taken aback by it. And, and we were they, we were novices in the in the in the college hunt, uh, searching game. And so then we went to lunch, and we sat down at a table, and uh, uh, it, it was a little bit of a, a culture shock for me because I was I, I was from Auburn, and I was a bit overwhelmed by this whole experience. You know, so many kids in this cafeteria, and, and then. Take it a step further. I don't mean to. I I, I really love so many of, of, of your fellow graduates and, and have, have so much respect for the Newhouse School. It, its reputation, uh, its its track record speaks for itself. But we went to this open house, and I went to speak to the athletic director at Syracuse. And I've told this story before. And uh, the voice of the Orange, Matt Park, who teaches at the Newhouse School, yeah. has, has has laughed about it with me. Uh, I went to Jay Crowdhammer, who was the athletic director at Syracuse at the time, and. Jake was kind of a curmudgeonly type guy, a, little, a lot of crust around the edges there. And I wanted to talk to him about being a manager for the basketball team or the football team, which had it come to fruition, I would have been with our mutual friend, Aaron Salkin, working for Paul Pasqualoni and the football team. But again, there again, I, I found like the audience <laughs> was not too receptive to my questions or my interests. And I was really discouraged. So my dad, we went back home and, and my dad said, let's, let's take a ride to Dayton. Now, mighty Dayton had not entered my train of thought whatsoever, except that it had been recommended to me by someone who was familiar with the school, who thought it would be a good fit. It was kind of a poor man's Notre Dame in a lot of ways, the way it profiled, similar size. Nothing that I, I was necessarily, uh, uh, felt an obligation or, or, or you know, an overwhelming desire to, to go to a religious school, but nonetheless, it, it was Catholic, a Marianist school. Uh, so you know, there was a very a similar uh, type of student who went to Dayton uh, as Notre Dame. And what I discovered when I went to Dayton is that just about all of us <laughs> were kids who couldn't get into Notre Dame or at least had siblings or parents who went to Notre Dame. So anyway, uh, long story, a little bit shorter. We went out, we decided to uh, spur of the moment. We drove out to Dayton. It was, they were about to break for Easter spring break and they were so accommodating to my dad and I at the very last minute, uh, the people in the financial aid office sat down and met with us. Uh, they found a student, uh, someone who was about to leave campus to stick around for an extra hour to give us a tour. And she could not have been nicer and more welcoming. And there was just a sense, you know what, this is the right place for me at this time. Now, having said that, I, I did apply to Syracuse a little bit later. I was in, in the minor leagues. I felt like I was on this treadmill in my career. And my thought at the time was, let's let's go to Newhouse. Uh, let, let, let's get that Newhouse degree, but maybe take a turn in the news and maybe work behind the scenes in production. And the idea at the time was to give up on sports and work as a producer for a show like ultimately 60 Minutes, wow. some type of an investigative uh, journalism uh, uh, vehicle. And I, I did, the, you know, as, as, as far from it as you can becoming a team broadcaster, sticking with the minor leagues. I talked to a famous Syracuse grad at the time, and he said, listen, you don't need to go to grad school right now. Grind it out a little bit more. And, and so I put that those plans on hold, and that following winter got another job in another place, and that kind of changed the direction of my career again. Yeah, it's it's amazing the decisions you make and 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 how they affect things. But uh, certainly it worked out for you. Go back to Dayton for a moment. What were you doing there? You know, in your efforts to pursue your broadcasting career, were you doing stuff with athletics at Dayton? Because again, some some good history, especially with the basketball program, obviously. Yeah, it's funny. I I got to Dayton and it was fresh off uh, an NCAA appearance. In fact. 
two years prior, they went to the Elite Eight with a player named Roosevelt Chapman. And then in my high school senior year, and this is another uh, interesting part of the story, I, uh, irony uh, along with it that, I, that I've told in the past, I was watching the opening round of the NCAA tournament, and I was rooting for Villanova. Villanova went on to win the tournament. Villanova was playing Dayton, and, and Villanova won in the last second tipping to advance in the tourney. I don't think people remember that game. And my mother remembered coming into the room and said, why are you rooting for Villanova? Dayton's a school that you apply to and you're considering. And I said, well, I'm never going to go there. Uh, so that was, again, you know, part of the irony in that I wound up there. And I got there just in time, Mike, for what was, uh, after the first year, I think, an NIT appearance, uh, the worst three-year stretch in Dayton basketball in recent memory. Uh, the head coach there, uh, a local legend, Don Donaher, who played at Dayton, had been a Final Four coach uh, for the Flyers back in the late 60s when they played UCLA with a great player named Don May leading the Flyers. Well, he was fired at the end of my college career. So that was the experience of Dayton basketball. But it, I nonetheless worked in the athletic department. Uh, it became a, a part of the sports information department, working a lot behind the scenes. There was a small student radio station that afforded some opportunities to broadcast games, but they were few and far between, although I did do some sports talk uh, radio hosting. In fact, uh, one of my classmates at the time, who eventually transferred, ironically, to Notre Dame, was Boo Corrigan. And Boo Corrigan, of course, has gone on to have a, a tremendous career in athletic administration, uh, first as an athletic director at West Point and then at NC State. And uh, Boo and his buddies used to listen to our, our sports talk show because one of his best friends from South Bend was my co-host. And uh, so, you know, that was a time when I was just getting some experience broadcasting, but not a whole lot. Uh, certainly nothing compared to what kids get today. This is pre-internet. It was nothing, I'm sure, like you got at Syracuse at the time. So for me, a lot of the experience I got was behind the scenes, uh, preparing the information for broadcasters and writers. And that opportunity in the athletic department at Dayton, traveling with the women's basketball team, being their media representative on the road, uh, working uh, with uh, incoming media at the men's basketball games and football games and so forth, that opened the door for me to an internship with the Cincinnati Reds. And while I was with the Reds, I was the lone intern in a very small front office publicity office. We had a full-time director, Jim Ferguson was a vice president, a full-time assistant director, John Browdy, a Syracuse grad, and a secretary, a former player named Gordy Coleman, who was the Speakers Bureau, the one-man Speakers Bureau, went out and talked to all the chambers of commerce and American Legion posts and VFW posts in the area, and me. So it was a tremendous opportunity for me as the lone intern in that department. And we hosted the all-star game during that stretch wow. to observe and interact with broadcasters and writers. And the Reds were playing at Riverfront Stadium. And while I was working for the Reds, I also worked for Sports Ticker during the games. Uh, sports Ticker, again, pre-internet, was the one way that stadiums around the country and sports bars around the country got their sports news up to the minute. And they had reporters on site at every game. And I sat in the press box, uh, tended to my duties for the Reds in the publicity office, and sat in the press box with a little Tandy Radio Shack computer. And I would type in the play-by-play -play of the game and then call in any time a run scored or immediately after a half inning ended the totals for that half inning, runs, hits, errors, men left on base, etc. But in the middle innings, for two or three innings, I was allowed to go down the first baseline 
to one of the empty Cincinnati Bengals radio television booths and take my computer with me and take a tape recorder with me and practice my baseball play-by-play. And so that's where I got most of my reps before I landed in my first job in professional baseball calling games on the air. Well, as an intern for the Cincinnati Reds, again, calling in sports ticker between innings, but calling the play-by-play uh, at Riverfront Stadium. That's amazing. I mean, that's, uh, like you said, it is practice, whatever, but uh, to be at a Major League Baseball game. So certainly that that led to, to more opportunities for you, but obviously that, that love for baseball had to, had to grow during that time as well. Did you think, okay, it's going to be baseball no matter what. This is going to be where my career is going from a broadcast side. Yeah, I, I thought baseball was certainly the sport that I knew best. As I mentioned earlier, it's the sport that I played uh, the best. Uh, and it's a sport that you know, I had so much experience in from the time I was a freshman in college doing PA for a Class A baseball team in the New York Penn League you know, through those years at Dayton when I interned for the Reds. And I also thought that minor league baseball, because of all that experience, media relations, uh, having at least a tape to give to a general manager of play-by-play, even though it was woeful, nonetheless, there was there were innings on tape in a major league stadium, and you're announcing names that they recognize. I thought, well, that's my best path. Get into minor league baseball, uh, land a job by any means in minor league baseball, and then follow that, that broadcasting career. But I did take a one-year detour as a sports information intern at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And I, and I believe that as the baseball uh, media relations rep, uh, we went to Wilmington. Uh, North Carolina was coming off College World Series experience. This was 1990. And uh, Navy, I mean, uh, uh, North Carolina played against UNCW, I believe, in Wilmington during that spring. I, I should have researched it before we started chatting. This one time I've been in Wilmington. Uh, Michael Jordan's, you know, uh, right. um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I worked for Carolina and again, it was, it was an experience to work around a lot of famous broadcasters. You know, we had Tim uh, Brando and Dick Vitale coming in, Marv Albert, along with Bucky Waters calling a game for NBC and later, you know, uh, Billy Packer coming in for CBS and uh, in the tournament, uh, getting a chance to sit down with CBS announcers and just you know, help out Armin Katane as the sideline reporter in Hartford for a game between, uh, well, that was a little bit later, actually, that was when I was at Navy, I'm, I'm getting my, my years mixed up. But nonetheless, there were opportunities to interact with, uh, with the broadcasters that were doing what I wanted to do where I wanted to do it ultimately. So I wasn't necessarily committed only to baseball. I wanted to broadcast all the sports, but after that internship at Carolina, again, that's, I, I thought baseball was the best path. So I, I got a job with the Rochester Red Wings in uh, the international league. And it was a job that initially was a glorified PR internship. Again, trying to parlay all that experience uh, as someone who could design publications, media guides, game day programs, someone who could write press releases, someone who could you know, compile game notes and media information and keep track of statistics. And I also had to sell advertising, outfield billboards, program ads, promotional nights, you name it. And then right before the season started, the second announcer who called only a few innings of home games took a job at a competing radio station. And so I went to the general manager with one of those cassettes, again, the cassette days uh, from Cincinnati, and I said, Dan, I, I'd like to be considered for uh, the second announcer's job. 
And he was a guy that luckily for me, uh, I was connected to, in fact, had worked for the Reds. So I had, there was there, there was a, a trust factor there, but also recognizing, hey, minor league baseball is, is to allow people to make mistakes and learn. That's what it's all about. And so he put me on the air with Josh Lewin. Uh, Josh was a prodigy in, in, in upstate New York. He's a Rochester native who was calling Red Wings games as a teenager. Went on to have a very good career. Uh, now is the voice of UCLA, and he's broadcast Major League Baseball for Fox and a number of Major League Baseball teams, was the voice of the San Diego Chargers as well. But I was Josh's partner uh, for a few innings of each home game. And then, of course, I wore all those other hats during the day as well. Yeah, in broadcasting, you know, when, when young broadcasters come to me, I say, hey, there's there's no right way or one way to do it, to get from A to B, right? I mean, you tell a story there of, Hey, here's your opportunity, a guy moved on, whatever you step in. I mean, I'm sure you talk to, to broadcasters a lot as well. Is that kind of the message that, that you have to them to just just to be ready when it's when it's your turn and, and an opportunity presents itself? Absolutely, Mike. And I think the, the thing about what we do is that experience is, is such a critical factor, being confident, finding your voice. Now, again, opportunities the kids have today. Uh, or, or uh, whether it's on, on streaming, whether it's campus radio and television, whether there are opportunities for them to intern at stations and regional networks that again didn't exist when when, when I was in college, you know, those opportunities allow for so much faster growth for kids. I think from the time they enter college, I mean, many of those kids have a great experience in high school now with some of the facilities, for, for example, where I live. Uh, and, and then through high school, they have so many more reps. But the biggest thing I always tell, I I tell young people is get as much experience as you can. You, you don't want to say no when you're just starting out in this business. Keep all your avenues open. Uh, have now more marketable skills. You know, at the time, again, I was able to parlay PR skills, media relations skills into an opportunity to broadcast. But but today, with social media, with new media platforms, uh, the internet, and, 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 and all the things that are, are asked of, of young people in the business uh, for, for less money than, you know, we would like to make, and, and nonetheless, you, you, know, you, you have to do it, uh, whether it's blogging, uh, whether it's uh, editing video, uh, putting up content, going out and setting up a tripod and putting your phone on it and recording, you know, a two-minute recap of that day's practice or the up, uh, a preview of the upcoming game, whatever it may be, you have to be more marketable. So the biggest thing that I tell young people along those lines is get as much experience as you can and continue to concentrate on the craft. And part of that, frankly, is reaching out to people in the business that you respect and admire. And I did that at a very young age. And, and that was one of the keys, I think, while I was with the Reds, and even at North Carolina, establishing some relationships with other broadcasters that I, you know, again, people that I emulated. And everything was born out of a desire to get better. It wasn't necessarily, hey, if I get to know this person, he or she can help me yeah. land a job in a year or two. I think that comes organically through building a relationship and I've always found that the best way to do that, and, and people are very accessible in our business, I think, when they know what your motivation is. At least that's been my experience. And if that motivation is to improve, if you, you seek improvement and you're open to honest, constructive criticism, if you want that feedback and you're willing to accept it and, and work on it, 
then I think people are going to, you know, open their doors to you. And, and I, and I found that in my career. And that's another thing that I stress to young people. So reach out, always worry about the craft. Uh, there's a line that I read in a Sports Illustrated article years ago by Marv Levy. He was at, he was talking about coming from a small college background and coaching in the NFL. And he said, I, I get letters all the time from high school coaches and college coaches asking me how to become an NFL coach. And his standard reply was, be a great high school coach or college coach. And, and that's what I try to stress as well to young people. Well, and you did that, and you were willing to go wherever it took to to get that experience and to improve, especially in the minor league baseball. How, you know, a lot of stops: Peoria, Delmarva, Frederick, uh, Albuquerque, Norfolk, Pawtucket with the Red Sox. There, um, is it a grind? As much of a grind as they, they talk about, because I'm sure you're on a bus more than anything else during uh, those trips. But uh, I'm sure it's an experience that uh, hardens you, toughens you, and, and makes you better from a broadcasting standpoint as well. Well, I think that's the most important thing uh, in, in, in that experience for me is that when you call a game in April in Clinton, Iowa, and there's nobody in the crowd and the wind is blowing, you know, 20 miles an hour and it's cold and they got a kid who's out there, 18, 19 years old, who can't find the strike zone, but they're going to leave him out there because they're out there to develop. And you go through that experience or it's, in early August afternoon, it's a getaway day, and you're calling a game in Kinston, North Carolina. Uh, we'll, we'll keep it uh, regional here uh, at the old ballpark there. And it's it's a game between the Frederick Keys and the Kinston Indians. And again, there's some young prospect who's out there, and, and the, the the manager used the bullpen the previous night, so he's not he's not going to burn the bullpen, uh, you know, for this early start today. And there are a couple thousand screaming kids there because they came on bus, school buses from their day camp. But, the, but then by the fourth or fifth inning, they've gone back to the, to the school. So the, the ballpark's empty and you have to try to make it sound interesting and keep your focus and energy up. But, you know, meanwhile, you're, you know, you, you might have, you might have traveled a long distance, you know, to, to start that series and you're burnt out and you're tired of press box hot dogs and, uh, you know, the lunch options during the day weren't, weren't so great. So that I think really tests, you know, the resolve, the resilience that you need, but also I think, you know, the, the gives you a great perspective when you do climb the ladder and hopefully you, know, you keep all those, those lessons and experiences, uh, in perspective. And I know for me, you know, I, I experienced like every kind of glitch that I could imagine in, in my minor league days. Now, it, could it, was it a grind? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially over time. As I felt I was, I was much better than where I was broadcasting, you know, not, not to sound arrogant, but nonetheless, you, you reach a point of diminishing returns and you feel like I, I'm better than that guy at the next level. And I was a AAA for a long time. I had a couple of sniffs at major league jobs that didn't come to fruition. Now, as I look back, I'm, I'm grateful for it because of this opportunity I've had for the last nine years and look forward to uh, this fall for a 10th season with the Patriots. But at the time, that was tough. You, you, you're, you're going from season to season too, Mike. I was doing college basketball and football as well. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of travel involved once I got into that seasonal work. I would drive from my home in Annapolis out to Albuquerque, for example, in March when I got to the AAA level as the broadcaster for the Albuquerque Isotopes. And then I would pack everything up in my car and drive back over Labor Day weekend at the end of the baseball season and broadcast Navy football. 
and then start basketball. And, and so you, you give up a lot socially, or at least I did. And, you know, for me, uh, delayed plans to, you know, you live, you're living out of rentals all the time. You're not, tra I wasn't traveling, vacationing. So I didn't do a lot of the things now that I, I look back on and say, I, I wish I had done a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. But then at the same time, I recognize now you, you, you did it your way. There is no one way yeah. to, to make it in this business, so to speak, make it. Um, so, you know, look back and, 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 and look at where you are today. And when I do that, I realize it was worth every minute, every mile, you know, of that journey. Hey, you mentioned you, you were doing Navy football during the baseball time, also basketball, some Patriot League stuff. Got to ask you about Army Navy. Uh, obviously, you, you broadcast a number of those 15 years as the play-by-play -play boys for, for Navy, right? Tell me about that game and and how you go about that as a broadcaster. It's got to be an emotional type of day as, as well. So how do you kind of keep your emotions in check? And just what was it like being involved with that game as a broadcaster? Yeah, I'll start with the latter part of it first. I think keeping my emotions in check for an Army-Navy game was far more challenging in a lot of respects than, for example, trying to contain emotions for some of the biggest games I've called for the Patriots because of what that game represents. And it's not just, you know, a one week thing. It's, it's, it's an annual every day of the year thing at, at the respective academies. Everywhere you go on the Naval Academy yard, you will see beat army as a plebe, a freshman at, at Navy learns. Yes, sir. No, sir. Beat army, sir. And, and it's of course, uh, similar at, at Army, the words are turned around a little bit. It's beat Navy, sir. Uh, and, and so you're, you're introduced to that from the first time you step on uh, the, the post at West Point or the yard in Annapolis. And the rivalry is, is fierce. It is intense. These are, are, are people who, you know, love their sports. They want to win. They want to knock that other, uh, you know, uh, player across the line of scrimmage you know, five yards downfield, uh, they're going to go out there. They are, they're, it's often said it's a sibling rivalry. Uh, well, they're the most competitive siblings, uh, you know, in, 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 in college football, or they're as competitive as, as any people, uh, even though, you know, they may not be uh, the, the size or as fast as the kids that are playing at the power conference schools. But, what it represents also is they are brothers in arms. And when you go to an army Navy game and you, and if you have a chance to go, I, I, I can't recommend it uh, more strongly uh, that you, you, you have to experience it from the morning, three, four, five, six, seven hours before kickoff uh, through the end and, and well after the end of the game, because it, it really, it's crystallized there why those kids are there. And, and when I was at Navy, it's important to keep in mind, I started, I called my first Army Navy game in 1997. So four years later, 9-11 you know, happens. And thereafter, through my last year, 2012, every midshipman, every cadet, Every, every man, every woman who, who chose to go to those academies did so in a time basically of two wars. And so you understand that they, you know, an, they're answering this higher calling. And again, you know, they want to beat each other as badly as, you know, the Oklahoma Sooners want to beat uh, the Texas Longhorns or the, you know, the uh, 
Alabama Crimson Tide want to beat the Georgia Bulldogs or the Tar Heels want to beat the Blue Devils. But there's also that recognition, especially for the seniors, that when the day ends, they're on the same team. And they may have to die for one another. Uh, you know, they're going to be Marines and sailors in the Corps and the Navy from Annapolis, and they're going to be in the Army uh, from West Point. And, you know, when you see the game and again, you, you see all the pageantry beforehand and so much of it is, is, is so inspiring. It, 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 I don't want to sound cliche, but you really it really makes you feel proud, especially in these times, you know, considering the climate in the country and, and the division around the country. I mean, you watch those young people and it, this does it gives you a sense of pride and also the, the people that are there. So many of them are graduates. They're all in their colors. So, you know, they've gone they've gone out and served. They've come back and, and they're from all around the country. They're all from they've been all around the world uh, to, to serve uh, for the country. Uh, they've been willing to pay any sacrifice. Uh, many of the former players and, 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 and fellow students have paid that sacrifice. And so there's this tremendous amount of pride and respect and reverence that leads into the game. The game unfolds, the game ends, and then they play the alma maters. And the winning team gets to sing second. And while the losing team is singing its alma mater, you know, the winning team stands behind it. And then after that alma mater, they, they go across the field and the winning team gets to sing. And John Feinstein, who wrote a book, Civil War, I think characterized it very well. Uh, you, you see it on the field, but it, it, he, his reference was to the locker rooms thereafter. Uh, there, there's no happier locker room than the winning locker room for an Army-Navy game in the words of Feinstein. Uh, there is no sadder locker room than the losing locker room for an Army-Navy game. But again, there's that sense of, of what, what, what they're doing, what they're called to do beyond playing their sports. And there is that that extra dimension that, that exists only in the service academy rivalry. Yeah, John Feinstein was one of our former guests and talked about that book and, and about that rivalry as well. But uh, great to hear your perspective with a, as a broadcaster of those games. So, again, you're doing Navy through 2012. You hear Gil Santos, the, the longtime uh, radio voice for the Patriots, is about to retire, I guess, right? Did it for 36 years. Take us through your mindset and and, and how you – came to apply, how you went about that process. And eventually in, in April of 2013, we're, we're hired as the next voice of the Patriots. Well, it's a long process. And again, I, I'm so long-winded, Mike. I, I'm going to apologize. Again. Hopefully I can try to figure out a way to, to, to condense this. Uh, I haven't done a good job thus far. And your alma mater is actually kind of involved in, in, in what led me uh, to the job at 985 The Sports Hub in Boston. Because Way back when, having grown up near Syracuse, and while I was calling minor league baseball, I think 2000, uh, in the 2000-2001 in, in the uh, period, maybe even 1999, Syracuse was hosting the NCAA regionals. Mm -hmm. And I was back home for the weekend visiting family. And a friend of mine named Pete Moore, who was a longtime member of the communications department at Syracuse, called me and said, hey, we need someone to volunteer this weekend uh, and check credentials, media credentials at the Dome for the regional games. And, all, and, and what the job entailed is you, you stand, you know the curtain. There's a curtain that splits the carry dome in half. You stand at the edge of the, the court where the curtain is, and behind you are all these tables with press guides and, and where the press conferences will be, et cetera. And your job is to make sure anybody that is, is back there has a, a press pass, and if they're going to the basketball of the region on Sunday, 
and one of my idols uh, at the time, and, and eventually uh, a mentor of sorts, uh, uh, was coming off the court. He was calling the game for Westwood One, Gary Cohen. And he was going to the bathroom. And he had about two or three minutes, probably at most, to do, do what he had to do. They had this trailer set up uh, in the press area. And I just I just reached out my hand and I said, excuse me, uh, Mr. Cohen, Gary, my name is Bob Sosi. I'm a big fan of yours, really admire your work. And he stopped and he said, what do you do, Bob? And I started to tell him. And he seemed more, at least as interested in, in what I did as I was in, in just meeting him and, in, in, you know, getting any morsel of advice. And he said immediately, like, hey, send me a tape. Just send it to the Mets. He said, I've got to get on a plane tomorrow morning to go to Japan. So I'm not going to get to it for a while because the Mets are opening the season in Japan. So send me a tape. And in April of that year, I was doing the Frederick Keys and Scott Erickson, longtime major league baseball pitcher, was with us on a, on a rehab, an injury rehab start. Good crowd, good game. Sent a couple of innings to Gary. And he, and he called me up uh, shortly thereafter. He said, you know, there were some things that uh, I want to talk to you about. But I, overall, he said, I liked your tape. In fact, I liked it so much, I brought it to my boss. And he brought the tape to his bosses at WFAN in New York and asked them to listen to it. Mark Chernoff and Eric Spitz. Now, I never got a job at WFAN, but I did get an interview with them just to go in and, and, and pick their brains. And that was, again, in that period, I think 2000, uh, maybe early in 2001. It was, well be, it was before 9-11. And uh, they gave me their thoughts, gave me some advice. And uh, I you know, went back to what I was doing in minor league baseball, Naval Academy, et cetera. And then a decade later, uh, by that time, <laughs> I'd moved to Boston. I met my wife. I was calling Navy, uh, working, living in Annapolis, working in Annapolis. She was in Baltimore finishing her education. And this is 2007, 2008. We get serious. We get engaged. Uh, she decides, she, you know, that she, she wants to go back home. And I, we, we both realize that we want grandparents. If we're going to raise a family, we're going to get married. We want grandparents close by. I'd always wanted to work in Boston or New York. This is an opportunity for me to move, knock on doors, and you know maybe you know that that dream job happens. And so, I had stayed in touch with the guys in New York a little bit. Gary certainly, Eric and and, and Mark not so much. My wife and I, my soon-to-be wife and I, moved to Boston. And I'm commuting. I'm going back and forth. I did this from 2008 uh, through 2012 to Annapolis from Boston and calling Navy games, calling minor league baseball games, knocking on doors locally here in New England. And it just so happens that in the fall of 2009, CBS Radio launches this all sports FM station and they have Mark Chernoff and Eric Spitz uh, serve as consultants. And so I reach out to them and asked them for some help getting an audience with the program director. And so because of that meeting a decade earlier or so, you know, they, they basically, one of them reaches out and says, hey, Mike to Mike Thomas at 985 The Sports Hub. Bob's a good guy. He does good work. He lives in the area. Can you meet him? And so I went into Mike Thomas's office, fall of 2009. The Sports Hub is, is brand new. Uh, it, it was an FM that... Uh, took over you know, a much stronger signal than the, the, the top station in Boston that was still on AM at the time, embraced hockey, was becoming really successful, ultimately would become the top station locally, and had the Patriots as its prime play-by-play uh, -play property. I just wanted a job, Mike, to get my foot in the door. I would take anything. 
I wanted to do headlines, but I would have taken anything. I walked out of there, handed them a CD with samples of my play-by-play. I did not hear anything for three years. And in the fall of 2012, as Gil Santos was winding down his final season with the Patriots, I got an email out of the blue. And it was from the executive producer of the Patriots radio network, Howie Sylvester, who said he wanted to hear, the station wanted to hear more of my football work. Because that CD I left in 2009, somebody listened to it. The assistant program director, Rick Radzik. Rick liked it when they were discussing candidates for the job. Rick threw my name in the hat. And uh, because I was technically, I think, a, I, I, this, is my, this is my assumption. Because I was technically someone who was local and that my residence, my mailing address was Milton, Massachusetts, maybe it made a little more sense for them to, to, to talk to me. And I had an opportunity to interview for the Patriots job in, in the spring of uh, late winter, spring of 2013, a few days apart from interviewing with the Pawtucket Red Sox for the prime job in minor league baseball springboard to the major leagues. I interviewed with the Paw Sox first. At the end of that interview, uh, the, the general manager of the team asked me, Bob, is there anything else we should know about? And I said, uh, well, I've got this other interview with 985 next week for the Patriots job, but it's really a long shot. I mean, nobody there knows who I am. And uh, they're like, I, they, I think they were funny. They might have helped me get the Paw Sox job. Well, anyway, uh, I got that job first and 985 did not make a decision until a month or so later. And it was April. We were on a road trip uh, with the Paw Sox and I got a call in the press box in Allentown, Pennsylvania at the home of the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. And I was in the back of the press box and Mike Thomas said, Bob, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is you're our choice to do the Patriots games. But the bad news is you got to give up the Paw Sox. Is that a non-starter? And, and luckily for me, <laughs> you know, there was no way it was going to be a non-starter. Luckily for me, the Paw Sox people were, were very happy, very gracious. And, and we worked out a situation where I could call their games through June and then in July because of training camp, yeah, become the Patriots full-time broadcaster. But again, it goes back to that initial contact, Mike, and, and what I said earlier about networking, but doing it because you want to get better and reaching out to someone you really respect and asking that person to lend a critical ear to your work and develop a relationship, you know, through subsequent years and subsequent tapes. And then, you know, somebody who had a small role, helps to open the door. You go in, you know, and the one time that somebody listens, you know, it's, it's the only time you needed it ultimately in my case. And I remember Gary told me that the first time we talked, he said, in this business, all you need to do is capture one person's ears. Yeah. All you need to do is, is, is it, it just takes one person. And for me, it took a long time. And, 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 and you know, it's like a, it's, it's a very convoluted path. I, I hope I didn't lose, lose too much of the audience. But you know, that, that's, that's how I landed the Patriots job. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to that. There's no one way from A to B. In this case, you had to be really patient. And maybe you think an opportunity wasn't going to come, and it eventually does. So, you know, when it does, you're replacing a guy, again, who has been there for 36 years in Gil Santos. What was that transition like for you, for the audience? Did you get some advice from Gillett as well to, to you know, during that time? I did, Mike, and that, that was extremely helpful to me. Uh, and, and, and actually, you know, I had made contact with Gil uh, in those years, you know, similar to what I was talking about earlier. I, I reached out to him. I loved it. I didn't know Gil growing up. 
because again, pre-internet days, there was no YouTube, uh, you know, other than maybe NFL films, you didn't hear broadcasters from, you know, doing out of market radio calls uh, in the NFL. And I, uh, and I, I knew more baseball announcers, but not, I just certainly didn't know guys around the NFL. And I went to a game in, in Foxborough, uh, the 2003 AFC championship game. It's a long story. I'm not going to get into it, but I got tickets to that game. And I had my yellow Sony walk man, and I was listening to the broadcast and I was mesmerized. I thought this, this is the perfect football play by play voice. And, and Gil is the voice of autumn in new England. He's mentioned 36 seasons and just, I mean, the classic, football broadcaster's voice, but also descriptive. And he called the game exactly the way I would want to call it. And so I really became a fan of this. And I started buying some of the NFL DVDs. Three Games to Glory was a series the Patriots put out with NFL films after the team won its first championship, its second, its third, et cetera. And I would listen to those DVDs more than watch them as I was preparing for my Navy games on the computer. And I reached out to Gil after I moved to Boston and asked him to listen to a game. And you know, I sent him a couple of series from a, a Navy Pittsburgh game and he really liked it, but he gave me some you know, constructive criticism as well. That started a, a little bit of a relationship, not much, but periodic contact with Gil. And uh, when I got the job, I had a chance to talk to him. And I remember uh, it was right before our first preseason game in Philadelphia. And Gil said, listen, I'm gonna give you a piece of advice. There are going to be people that don't like the way you do the games because it's not the way I did the games. But just remember, there are going to be a lot of people who like the way you do the games because it's not the way I did the games. So just go be yourself and tell Zolak, you know, to shut up. So Scott Zolak's a very animated uh, partner. And, uh, and, and he was hugely instrumental in helping me move into the booth and feel comfortable because right before the first game, we're in Philadelphia. It's a Lincoln Financial Field. Nobody in New England outside of a couple of people know who I am. I am nervous, obviously. Uh, it's daunting. Uh, as much as I tried to tell people it wasn't, trying to follow Gil Santos. And uh, we're like 30 seconds from airtime. The station billboard is running, telling the audience who's sponsoring the game. Before we go out to the stadium now with Bob Sosa and Scott Zillak. And Zoe turns to me and says, Bob, don't. F this up. And, and I just broke out laughing and like, hi, everybody. Welcome to Lincoln Financial Field. And, and you know, that that really made me feel made me feel comfortable, even though I was still nervous and I was nervous throughout the first year. Mike, uh, you know, the first game that I did very quickly, we were in Buffalo and the Patriots were behind the whole game until the fourth quarter. They drive downfield, they kick a late field goal as time expires. Stephen Gostkowski hits it to win it. But this whole time I'm thinking, God, great. My first game is the Patriots broadcaster and they're going to lose to the Wolf. Bills are starting a rookie quarterback, EJ Manuel. The Pats are losing. They're not going anywhere on offense for most of the game. This is all, this is, I could not envision like a, a worst way to start my, my, my Patriots tenure. Because they all blame it on you if they lose, right? Oh, the, the hometown broadcast always sounds good, or at least it sounds better when the team wins. Yes. So the funny thing is I made the mistake after that game of checking my mentions on, on social media. And somebody tweeted that I was the worst broadcaster ever. And I, and I replied to him. I, I've always tried to reply uh, with exception to some or at the ear vile or whatnot. Um, and I said to the guy, I said, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. And he, he, he replied to my reply and he said, I'll give you another chance. Just give the score and time more often. And I thought, you know what? That's, he's right. 
And uh, over time, I heard other other criticisms, yeah. you know, certain loudly and clearly. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, some are personal and, and, and you look past those. But then there are some that, you know, again, that, that, you know, do touch on things to keep in mind and, you know, maybe trying to pack less into those 30 seconds when I'm calling the game or, you know, hold back on that uh, bio note or nugget that you have, uh, you know, and, 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 and it's, been, it's been a great experience really uh, from that point on. Well, you're talking about winning games and, and winning the favor of fans because of that. You had a chance to call three Super Bowl victories, each of them more exciting than the other, I think. Uh, you beat Seattle, my Seahawks, uh, 28-24, Malcolm Butler's interception, the, the big come-from-behind win against uh, the Falcons, and then the Rams 13-3 in, in 2018. Uh, does one stick out in your mind more than the other? Because, again, they were all kind of very dramatic wins. I think the Seahawks game was the best game. I mean, I think, you know, more memorable for a lot of people is the Falcons game because of the comeback naturally. But I think the Seahawks game was, was definitely the, the, the best of the three Super Bowl wins I've called for the Patriots in that it was back and forth. Uh, the Pats had to stage a comeback at the time, the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. There were improbable plays, no more, so, none more so than two of the final uh, three plays uh, involving the Seahawks offense, the Jermaine curse catch along the sideline that I thought Malcolm Butler had knocked incomplete. And then of course the Butler interception. And then of course, you know, what, what still exists to this day, uh, the, the reaction to that play call by Pete Carroll and Daryl Bevel uh, to throw it rather than hand it to Marshawn Lynch. But that game to me was the best of the games. The best broadcast for me uh, was, was the more recent Super Bowl because I felt like every game I got better and each of those opportunities, I handled those opportunities more maturely uh, in a more composed way uh, that, you know, I, I found my voice. I was more confident. I was blocking out some of the things that I used to think about, worry about, you know, when I started my Patriots broadcasting career and just overall handling the situation a lot better, the, the, the pomp and, and uh, you know, insanity of the week before the Super Bowl on site. I, I will tell you that before the Seahawks game, quickly, I, I got a great piece of advice from someone who worked for one of the national uh, radio networks who told me, pulled me aside and said, look, you may never get back to this game again. So you better enjoy enjoy every second of it because number one, it's going to help you relax. And number two, you're not going to look back with regret. And so I tried to do that with every one of those Super Bowl broadcasts. And, and I found in time that, uh, you know, it, it not only works well for Super Bowls, it works well for everything. You know, we, we, preseason games, regular season games, postseason games for me. Uh, you know, I, I love all of them. Uh, you know, calling the Super Bowls, are, it's certainly a privilege and a thrill, especially that I got to call so many so early in my career in the NFL for in the first uh, six years in, in the NFL, uh, which is ridiculous. And I know so many people around the league that have been doing it a lot better for a lot longer that have had only a few postseason games to call some of them, some of my better friends in the business. And so I don't take that for granted, but at the same time, I think, you know, when, when you go in to call a game and I, and I would say this, when you're calling UNCW or you're calling Navy or you're calling a minor league baseball game, high school football, whatever it is, it's the most important game you're going to call. And that's the way you feel when you sit down to broadcast, or at least that's in my opinion, that's the way you should feel. Uh, so for, for me, you know, calling any game is a thrill. And calling any game is something not to take for granted. Obviously, the Super Bowl, you're going to have a final moment. 
do you go into a game like that thinking of a final call or what you might say? I know, you know, as a broadcaster, you don't want to have it scripted, but but maybe you have something in your mind in each of those three. Did you go in with something? There were things that over over the course of like the week or the, the day of the game that, you know, a lot of different things pop into your mind. And then, uh, you know, with, with the Butler under seven, I mean, when you're calling the last second play, there's no way to, to script that out or at least to uh, organize your thoughts surrounding this in, interception. I, I was like, when that play happened, I was kicking myself because I thought the completion to curse initially was incomplete. And so I'm upset that I kind of, in my mind, I screwed up that play. And then the, the next play is a handoff to Marshawn Lynch. And thank God he didn't score for a lot of reasons, but it gave me a chance to kind of regroup. It was a tremendous play that's overlooked by Dante Hightower and the Patriots defense to keep him out of the end zone. Hightower playing basically with one healthy shoulder there. And uh, that gave me a chance at least to catch my breath. The thing with the Butler uh, play that was so challenging is it happened so fast. The ball snapped back to Wilson. There's a throw in a crowd. And when I called that play, I, I wasn't sure at the time that I got it right. I just intercepted it, intercepted by Malcolm Butler. And I, I learned from the call too, a, a, a lesson that, I, that I've kept with, with me to this day about, you know, the importance of shutting up after a play like that and just letting the crowd tell the story. I, I talked too long after it. Nonetheless, you know, it's a play that, uh, you know, is, is unforgettable for Patriot fans. And I get a, a generally a favorable reaction to that call. But for me, again, that's something that you, it's spontaneous. You can't, you can't prescript that. You know, it's your, my focus after the curse blows, just, just get the next play right. Get the next play right. Don't screw it up. And then that play happens, and I'm like, oh, did I, did I get it wrong? And I'm, we're in the booth. My producer's hugging me, and I'm like, Mark, did, did I say Butler? Did I get the play right? Did I get the play right? And he's like, Bob, you got it right. Just go enjoy it. You know, so we went down to the field, and the confetti was falling after we signed off and, and had a chance to at least, you know, watch the celebration take place. Same thing with the Super Bowl 51. James White catches a toss sweep. And goes into the end zone in the final play of the game. It's the first overtime game in Super Bowl history. No chance to script that out. And by, frankly, Mike, at that point, like it, it was so in, uh, incredible that they were even in the game, let alone they were winning the game on that particular play. Uh, so those words that, that blurted out of my mouth, completely organic, you know, touchdown and the title for the Patriots. Now the the last game with uh, the Rams, there was there was some thought involved. But again, I, I think that when you when you script a call, uh, when you essentially you know contrive a call, it, it sounds contrived. Yeah. And, and and I don't think any of us, you know, at least in my opinion, I, I I I want I think the best calls are born out of the emotion of the moment. I've said that before, and, and I've read it before. I'm sure or something to that effect. That I really believe that. You know, my favorite calls, the, the most memorable calls. Do you believe in miracles? The Giants win the pennant, etc. Those are calls that you know they happen. They're 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 not calls that you wrote down. And I had done that interestingly for a big Navy moment years earlier. I had kind of written down something, and I learned from that experience that it didn't sound good. Um, so when I called the the Rams game, what happened is that during the week, a number of I you know calls from Gil Santos that were being played. You hear all kinds of Super Bowl highlights during the week, right? You NFL Network's on the background everywhere you go, and there's a Super Bowl highlight show on, followed by a classic Super Bowl broadcast, the whole broadcast. And so, you know, subconsciously you're hearing all these these games and these moments. And one of Gil's most famous calls was after the Patriots won their third Super Bowl in four years when they beat the uh, the Eagles in Super Bowl 39. He says, you know, three out of four. 
Now, back to back, three out of four. Yes, it's a dynasty. So that was kind of in the back of my head. And I was walking to the stadium in Atlanta, and there was a fence that had photos, canvas with photos of each championship ring for all the preceding 52 Super Bowls. And, and then I walked by that, that, that stretch from Super Bowl 36, 7, 8, 9, and looked, oh, there's three of four Super Bowls of the Patriots rings, and I actually took a picture of it. I take a lot of pictures on, on the road uh, to post on social media or to put in a scrapbook. And I remember so you know going into the game, and as the game's winding down, uh, 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 Ziegler, uh, 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 the, the Rams miss a field goal and uh, at the end of the game that seals it for the Patriots. Uh, so it's going to be a kneel down for Brady. And now I'm starting to formulate these thoughts. And uh, um, so the, in the Rams game, uh, I've got that vision from in, in, in Gill's in my mind. And this Brady's about to take the knee to seal the championship. It, it dawns on me, you know, Tommy's about to be a six-time Super Bowl champion. Uh, and he takes the knee to the Patriots have won their sixth Super Bowl title. And then it hit me. Uh, you know, that was also the year Gill had passed away and Gill's called to my mind the three out of four from early 2000s and I said on air I said in the early 2000s I had a chance to catch my breath for a second and I said in the early 2000s the Patriots out of four now they have won three out of five. yes it's still a dynasty so all I did was insert the word still and so in some ways it was I guess uh, uh, scripted um, you know, but it, it kind of came together, uh, you know, in that moment, uh, based on all the, the years and the sounds that I heard leading up to the game, and 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 that was very uh, uh, very kindly looked upon, reviewed by some people that I really appreciate uh, here locally. Well, again, you've you've done great things in 2021. You were the Massachusetts Sportscaster of the Year, National uh, Sports Media Association. What what the that honor mean to you to be recognized again in a city with uh, i'm sure a lot of talent a lot of uh, other great broadcasters there and you're the one that gets that award what did that mean to you it, it's it's you know mike it, it's funny i like sometimes i hear the calls of the super bowl moments we're talking about my experiences uh you know in those games and and it's hard for me to really like because like, i'm sitting here in a t-shirt and shorts i just got back from walking the dog you know i'm, I'm with the I, I I don't like, I still sometimes don't grasp the fact that, oh, yeah, I, I do that. That was me. It, it, it's, it's a weird thing. I don't, I, I don't know if other people in the business, I've never talked about it with uh, my peers, but I just, I, I, it's hard for me to put myself in that place. And, you know, and, and calling it Brady and, and Belichick, and I said this before too, like, I think of like the, the guys who called the greatest of all time, like they were doing the games when there was black and white film. And it's, you know, Willie Mays in center field or, or you're, you know, you're watching Johnny Unitas in the 60s. And so it's hard for me, again, to really appreciate, like, that it's me. I mean, I, I do appreciate it, but to, to understand and, and, and to really fully get my head around it. And so when it comes to, like, an award like that and the history of Boston, it's, it, it, it's hard for me to put myself, like, in that place. But I, I, I remember the spring um, after I got the award, too, I, I'll be honest with you, Mike, like for years, I, 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 it's the first award I've ever won in my broadcasting career. And I've been at it 
for a long, long time. And I remember for years, I, I looked at the words like that when other people got them and, and I scoffed and I said, oh, those, they don't mean anything. You know, it's just a popularity contest or you have to be a member of, of that organization to get an award or, you know, because of my career was so transient. I know, you know nobody here really knows you well enough to give you something like that. Um, you know, basically I was trying to rationalize in my own mind, uh, you know, in, 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 out of my own insecurities. And so in the spring I'd gotten that award and, you know, and it, and it was humbling at the time, but then I remember I was, I was in, 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 uh, Boston for, uh, the run up to the Boston marathon. I, uh, it was in Back Bay in Boston, where the, the Heinz Convention Center is like the center of all the activity pre-marathon. The, the couple of days when thousands of runners come in from around the world and they go and they pick up their bibs. And, you know, the, the, the finish line there is freshly painted and there are a lot of tourists taking pictures and so forth. And it's just a, it's a great Boston uh, experience. And I thought to myself that day, it's like, you really you're, you're part of like this history and in, 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 in tradition now. You know, because I like I hear Kirk Gowdy on the old Red Sox calls. I hear Gil Santos of the Patriots, Johnny Most in the Celtics. Yeah. I don't belong in that class. You know, the people that have written in Boston and chronicled sports in this marketplace, uh, people that you know now in, uh, in present times, like Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy, Jackie McMullen, <laughs> and uh, you know Lee Monville, I mean, the the best of the best. I, I know you know I'm leaving some others out. Uh, Kevin Paul Dupont for hockey. And so again, it's just hard for me to, to put myself uh, in, in anything remotely close to that class. But when I got the award in Winston-Salem, Dave Gorn uh, does such a great job of the National Sports Media Association. And it was such a tremendous experience for me. And I was, it, was, it was kind of like a sentimental journey too, because I met all these guys that I got to know initially got on, on those steps along that journey and from Peoria you know, to present day. And, uh, you know, being around a couple of the the, the Boston honorees, it, it, it dawned on I me, mean, you know, you, this is really, really special. And uh, again, I don't think I, I, I'm still appreciating it more and more today. Uh, but just to be recognized by your peers, I think more than anything to, to be recognized by your peers for the way you go about your job. It's, it's, I think it's as much about that than the job you do. There are a lot better broadcasters than me locally, regionally, nationally who do what I do. Um, but you know, I think maybe, you know, I got that award because just people appreciated the way that I, I try to do my job. And, and, and honestly, Mike, I, I've, I've learned from, uh, you know, sour experiences and, and I, when I've been, you know, unfortunately uh, far from the model professional, the way I've handled things along the way. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's as much about personal development as, as, as it is for me about broadcasting development. Well, it's been a very interesting journey to, to hear, and hopefully we, we have some young broadcasters that maybe watch this because, again, patience, determination, obviously talent as well kind of led you to where you are right now and the, the success that you had. How can people follow you? Are you on social media? Can, can they follow you that way? They can. I'm on uh, Twitter. I'm on uh, Instagram, though I don't use it very much, mostly just for pictures of our dog. Um, but uh, on Twitter, at Bob Soci, S-O-C-C-I, uh, as well. They can find me at 985thesportshub.com. And now that the training camp is about to kick off, I'll have uh, you know, a re regular notebook and column uh, on that website. I also have my own personal website, bobsoci.com. But I'll be honest with you, Mike, I, it's, it, I'm not like the, 
the, the primary source or even the secondary or tertiary source for Patriots information, not even close uh, when it comes to like the day-to-day -day reporting. Uh, so I, I tend to, to, to tweet and comment on uh, football, but also on a lot of other things. Uh, and, uh, you know, just so, things that are important to me. And, uh, and I don't do it with, with a great deal of regularity. It's only occasionally. So, but the best way to find me is probably 985thesportshub.com. All right. Well, we'll be checking that out this year and uh, certainly looking for you and the, the Patriots to have another good year. And uh, like I said, we all sound a lot better when our team plays better and wins games. So uh, I hope that for you here this season coming up. I appreciate it. And, and can I just add quickly, because I screwed it up when I was describing the Rams game, Zerline. I could not think of the kicker's name. Greg Zerline missed that kick. Then I knew the Patriots would have a kneel down. But, hey, it's been great talking with you. Uh, as, as I mentioned, we have a mutual friend who works for the Patriots. I've heard a lot of great things. I've watched the podcast, listened to the podcast before. So I'm honored to be here. All right. I appreciate having you. Best of luck. Thank you. You too. Well, my thanks to Bob for spending a little time with us before it gets a little hectic for him. The NFL season right around the corner. Our thanks as well to uh, New England Patriots PR man Aaron Salkin for helping connect us with Bob and hear his story here today. We hope you enjoyed that one. More great stories to come. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Do not miss any more great guests that we have coming up for you soon. Thanks for joining us, as always, in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.